Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, a podcast going beyond the bath to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I am your co-host, Brent Hinson, and today's guest is not only a dedicated member of law enforcement, but he's also devoted much of his life to being a lifelong learner, earning multiple degrees, including Doctorate of Public Administration in 2019. And that's something I want to discuss with him today, the fundamental role that higher education plays into a career in law enforcement. We'll dive into all that momentarily. But first, let me welcome our host, a man who is already at this moment planning a massive cookout when the Tennessee branch of the Between the Lines staff visits his home in Michigan this July. That is Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Buddy, I'm doing great, but I, I'm going to tell you right now, and might as well, since our guest is listening, he'll hear it too. I, I'm a little uh, discombobulated right now. You're on tilt? You know, as we're recording this, we're coming off a long holiday weekend, which means for the next month, I will be off a day on when I'm thinking what day of the week it is. Uh, because as we're doing this, it's oh, a Tuesday, right. but it feels like a Monday. Yeah. And the older I get, the longer it takes for me to recover from that. Yeah. Not only is it a, a Tuesday after a holiday, I had to go to the dentist today and that really threw me off. So I'm all discombobulated. Timing's everything. I'm, I'm Luckily, we have a superb guest who can carry the show for us today. Yeah. We'll just turn our mics off and let him go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what, why don't you go ahead and introduce him so we can turn our mics off? <laughs> all right. Well, our guest today... Like many previous guests we've had on this podcast, acquired the desire to get into law enforcement when he was still in high school. Chief John Robinson started his law enforcement career in 2001 with the city of Alpharetta, Georgia. He later went on to become chief of police for the Powder Springs Police Department in 2015 before returning to Alpharetta in 2017, where he was named the public safety chief, where he serves as director over police, fire, and 911 services. Oh, and by the way, he earned a Master of Divinity degree from New Orleans Seminary in 1998. So I'm really not sure how to properly address him here. I do I go by chief, doctor, pastor? I, I don't know. So just to be safe, I'll say it is our pleasure to welcome John Robinson to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, man. I'm, I'm excited and I appreciate the opportunity. Now, now, Brent, I'm just going to disclaimer right up front. I refer to this guy as chief. Okay. He, he's in my phone as chief John. Okay. So that's how I don't, I don't call him, you know, John, but chief, we appreciate you being here today, taking time out of your schedule because we know it's busy, but thank you for being here with us today. No, like I said, I'm excited, Mike. When you mentioned this to me a while back, I was like, get to get on a podcast and talk to my buddy, Mike. That That's a good thing. So I appreciate this podcast, what you guys have been doing. I'm a listener as well. So this is kind of cool to be on the other end of it this time. Well, it's nice having somebody that understands what the level of expectation is before we get started, <laughs> isn't it, Brent? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But th this is a question I ask most of our guests, so I'll start you with it. What took you down the pathway of law enforcement as you were growing into adulthood, what brought this as an opportunity for you to, to have this as a career? Well, it, it was it started in high school, just an interest. I do have an uncle that uh, was a sheriff in Carroll County, Georgia, which is a rural area uh, out near where I grew up. And so, uh, you know, hearing some stories from him growing up, I, I definitely had an interest in high school. Then I got in college 
and uh, went down the the uh, the route of uh, you know getting the criminal justice major. Uh, still trying to kind of figure it out. And interestingly enough, what really kind of solidified it for me, I was working at a bank part time while I was in college and got robbed at gunpoint. And uh, so that whole process of meeting with the chief of the Douglasville Police Department where I was working and kind of seeing that whole process play out really kind of solidified my like, yeah, I got this desire that I, I, I want to do good things and lock the bad guys up, if you will. So that kind of solidified it for me and, uh, you know, always kind of had a desire to serve. I know that's cliche, but that really was it. Obviously, was looking for a career that would be fulfilling. Um, also, uh, you know, a career where I'm not stuck in an office every day and, you know, the whole variety thing, which is ironic because now I'm sitting in my office that I sit in most days uh, on my job. I was going to point that but, out, uh, but uh, you know what? It's, it's your show. You yeah. run with it how you want to. <laughs> that's right. That's right. How so, old were you when that, uh, that, that robbery happened? Well, I was, uh, I want to say I was in college, so probably 19, 20 years old. Yeah, literally had a couple guys come in and guys stuck a nine millimeter right in my face. And yeah, it's, it's an event I'll obviously never forget, but I was 19 or 20, I think. I mean, at that age, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, but I would, I would, that would shake me up a little bit. Were you phased uh, by that or is it like a fight or flight and you were just like fighting on through it? You know, it's funny you say that because that's the first time I've really experienced a traumatic event, if you will. And so during the event, which it felt like it took 10 minutes, of course, it was literally a minute or two, you know, getting the money out of the drawer, pull the bait money, the whole thing we're trained to do. And then he had us turn around and walk toward the back. I was actually pretty calm. I remember being, you know, pretty, pretty scared, obviously, but I was calm and cool. And then when they left and then the uh, police officers got there and I started talking about it, that's when it kind of hit me. So I guess that was kind of my first indication that I, maybe I could handle a stressful situation like that. But yeah, it, it scared the living crud out of me, honestly. But uh, uh, but got through it, did what we were supposed to do, you know, went through the protocols and again, pulled the bait money. The bad guys got caught. Eventually, they had a huge chase um, down I-20, which is interstate in our area. And eventually caught both the guys. And, uh, yeah, so it was definitely a unique experience, but I guess kind of my first under pressure or critical, you know, event of, of my young life at that time. We, we've been doing this for about a year. But but I have to point out another similarity. I mean, we talk about public service and how we, we get a lot of people that are military veterans on here. But the chief is the second guy that we've had on that got into law enforcement that, that were spurred on to law enforcement because they were part of a bank robbery uh, on the victim side, <laughs> not, not, not on the trigger side. Right. But if you remember Mike <laughs> Kelly from back with uh, Rob Chadwick, you know, he, he was working in banking and was held up and eventually got into the FBI. But it, it's interesting, though, because most people, if they were involved in an incident like that, it would seem like they would want to stay away from law enforcement because those are the people you're dealing with. You, you say you want to help people, but I think that's a good indication that you did getting into it after that. Well, Mike, you, you've probably asked this same question, uh, teaching some of the same classes we've taught over the years. You know, we ask, you know, what, what was your why? What was your reason for getting in the profession? And oftentimes I've heard some of the folks in our classes talk about an experience like that where they were a victim or maybe they had a family member that was a victim or even the other way of just a class I taught last week where a guy said my father was an alcoholic and uh, was abusive and I wanted to go a different direction. So I think it's important to see that, uh, you know, that heart for service, definitely a part of getting in this profession. But for a lot of people, there was probably an event or an experience or uh, an upbringing, you know, maybe that help shape them kind of create that mindset of really wanting to go out and serve and, and, and do well. So 
to your point, I think uh, a lot of times there are some personal experiences that drive that desire to get in this very unique and sometimes difficult profession. But it goes to that. that what, what's the uh, uh, the one question? If not me, then who? Then who? Right. I love the people that say, OK, it's me. You know, here am I, send me. And I think that says a lot about people's character. But uh, you start off, you're Officer Robinson. If I were to ask you, hey, tell me a story that defines how different the officer was from the chief. So, yeah, there's one that definitely comes to mind regarding the different perspective uh, of the position. I was actually Detective Robinson at that point, and which, by the way, of all the jobs I've done in law enforcement, that's still my Probably my favorite. I, I really, really enjoyed being a detective, uh, work crimes against persons, uh, especially crimes against children, which was very rewarding. So, so I was a detective at the time, and we, uh, so Alpharetta is a metro Atlanta, uh, a nice uh, suburb, if you will, north of Atlanta. We have a large mall here, and back in, I guess this was probably the mid-2000s, I don't, 2005, 2006, I don't remember the exact date. Our mall, among several other malls in the metro area, were getting hit by what were called the Blue Jean Bandits. It became a, a metro Atlanta story on the news where a group of three or four would go into a, uh, a high-end store for us. It was Parisians and still literally $10,000 worth of blue jeans in one swipe, which one thing I know is I definitely don't wear those kind of jeans. My jeans uh, would never be on that rack they were trying to steal from, for sure. So so like one or two pairs I could see, but 10000 how do they pull yeah. that off? Well, but that's that tells you how expensive these jeans were. And so oh, you, you got okay. three or four going in there and grabbing just handfuls of jeans. But I was floored by that. I was like, how is that even possible but that's so I, I asked that same question. I'm out of touch. I'm wearing uh, Walmart jeans. So, you know. same. So, so yeah, you're talking jeans at several hundred dollars a pair. So, anyway, so we, um, we were getting hit like everybody else. And so, our, our detectives, we did a detail, an off duty detail, where I basically, it was my night to sit in my unmarked car and just wait to see if they would show up. We did this for several weeks. And, and sure enough, you know, mall closes at nine. It was seven thirty, eight o'clock at night. And I had a, a mall security radio and they started screaming on the radio. They just hit us. They just hit us. I see them come out of the parking lot. And, um, sure enough, they're basically leaving on two wheels and the chase is on. So I'm in an unmarked Dodge Intrepid uh, of all vehicles, which you get about one good pursuit out of those. And then the brakes and everything else are going to have to be replaced. Speedster there. <laughs> yes, sir. If, you, if you've ever driven a Dodge, you know the issues with the brakes back in the day. Anyway, so we, we the chase Sponsored is on. by Dodge. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That was a long time ago. I'm sure they're much better now. So we're on, a, we're on the mall road, if you will, 35 miles an hour speed limit, and we're doing 70, 80. Get on our version of an interstate. And marked vehicles get in there at that point. And, of course, per policy, I uh, am to disengage at that point. So I will say that I disengaged uh, from the pursuit. But if I was being honest, I, I will tell you I was definitely hanging around still. And so anyway, so we go up. Vehicle crosses over the median, takes out one patrol car, totals it. Thankfully, the officer wasn't hurt. Another patrol car was slightly wrecked, and then one of our officers pitted them out, took care of them, four people. The driver was 15, and the other passengers, three passengers, were 16 years old. So chase of my life, had a blast, you know, blue jean bandits. I was the man, caught the blue jean bandits, which it was more luck than, than skill because it just happened to be the night they hit, right? But it was phenomenal. It was. Take that chase, and, and from my perspective now, sitting at my desk here as chief, who my two priorities are you know, protecting our community and taking care of our, our people, our officers, uh, I have a completely different perspective of that. You know, 
ask the question, what was that great pursuit and that unbelievable arrest? What was the original charge on that? Shoplift. Yeah, shoplifting. And so we endangered police officers, community, people on the road, and even the suspects over blue jeans. Granted, they were very expensive blue jeans. And, and don't get me wrong, it, it was great that we were able to make that arrest. It was, it was obviously a, a great pop. But from my perspective now as chief, I look at that and go, is it, we have to make a decision. Is it worth entering a pursuit you know, on minor traffic violations, on uh, any property type crimes. And there's a great debate over that. There are some agencies that will pursue, you know, no matter what. And there's some good arguments for it. But uh, from my perspective, I had to come in and kind of reset our, our perception of what matters when it comes to pursuing. And so my view was completely different. So loved it. One of my favorite stories as a law enforcement officer. Uh, as a chief, it gives me a lot of heartburn. To show you how my mind works, several things came up in the story that kind of spurred some thoughts here. Number one, when you said blue jean bandits, I immediately went to wet bandits. Home alone. Home yeah, alone. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> See, so so yeah. it didn't say it was a mature mature thought process, <laughs> but that's what came. But, but the next thing is, and I believe it was down in Georgia, but recently there was some folks and retail store that were fired for violating policy during a shoplifting event. And the way that they violated policy was calling the police. Mm-hmm. As That's a correct. chief, if you recognize that the establishment is so unconcerned about that type of event, do I want my people putting themselves in physical danger in order to apprehend someone that is the suspect in one of those events? Absolutely. You actually see that a good bit now where there are a lot of actual stores at our mall and other stores in our area. And this is not just in the Atlanta area, all over the country where they don't want to prosecute shoplifting at all. And so uh, you're right there. Their perspective of the property and the other ones losing the money. That's a good indicator of maybe um, how not important. I shouldn't say it that way, I guess. But at the end of the day, it's still a crime and we still want to catch people that are stealing and it's still wrong. But, uh, you know, we have to balance the the endangerment of life versus, you know, the, the payoff of catching somebody like that. Let me ask you just a quick follow up on what you're talking about here. Is it possible to take the wisdom that you have right now and insert it into a young officer? Or is that just something you have to learn by experience? I think a little bit of both, you know, just using, since we're talking about this, using this as an example of, of, you know, the importance of communication. When I got here and changed the policy, I knew it was not going to go over well. We had a wide open policy and I, I definitely tightened it up. And so I went to all the, all our shifts. We have four, you know, roll calls, invited all the officers, everybody in the agency to come at one of these four meetings and say, Hey, this is a change we're making and, and give them the why. I gave them the why, you know, as far as my, my concern about their, their safety and the safety of our community versus again, you know, what are we getting in return when we're endangering people based on a traffic violation, a minor traffic violation or, or you know, property crime. And so I think to your question, hopefully my message uh, of my why and wanting to make that change maybe resonated and got in their mind. Now, listen, I still got folks today. I have folks today that, uh, you know, would prefer that we chase till the wheels fall off, you know, like uh, like Georgia State Patrol and other agencies around us. But then in the day, I, I think that hopefully they at least have an understanding of, of the perspective, but also I think some of it's just growing up and getting a, a little older and a little more maturity. I mean, we've all seen it with officers that have done this for years. You know, after several years, you kind of begin to realize what matters and what doesn't. So I, I think it's a combination of both, honestly. It's part of my job. I do believe to try to help them see that and, and, and see the red flags with situations like that and, and try to get them there as much as I can. But 
a lot of it they're going to have to figure out on their own as well. I have to point out a couple of things to Brent here. One of the things that I really appreciate about the chief is the fact, number one, that he acknowledged that doing that chase was fun. It's an adrenaline rush. And denying that, just I, I don't think people care about your why if you're not honest with them. I mean, that was a fun chase, wasn't it? Hundred percent. Again, one of the, one of the highlights of my career. It, it was. It was. It was cool. That's part of why we get in law enforcement, right? To chase the bad guys. Yeah. The the other thing would be he also acknowledges that you know, hey, it's a property crime, but it's somebody we want to catch because I think just about anybody would recognize that crime unaddressed begets more crime. And, you know, we've seen that in several cities around the country where the prosecutors just come out and said, hey, you know what? We're not going to prosecute anything that's less than a thousand bucks. Well, you know, the societal impact is that you've got these businesses closing up shop in these cities and saying we can't afford the losses anymore. We do want to address it, but perhaps at 100 miles an hour is not the way to address it. Would you agree, Chief? I would agree. And to your point, Mike, that's one of the beautiful parts of technology and why technology is so important. What we have today that we didn't have when I had that pursuit is we have flock cameras, LPRs all over the city now. And so, you know, we now have a much better chance of when a crime is committed and we have a suspect or a vehicle, even if we don't have a lot of information on that vehicle or the tag or anything, we have an opportunity to utilize the technology that we have with those cameras. We're, we're starting a real-time crime center uh, in July. Uh, our budget just hopefully will be approved next month for that. And so utilizing that technology and trying to be smarter, that helps keep our folks safer and our community safer, but still addressing the issue that you just brought up that we, we can't allow for this. We don't soften our view of crime in the city of Alpharetta. We we are very much uh, proactive and, and uh, aggressive in trying to make sure that we eliminate that as much as possible. We're just utilizing different methods to make that happen. Would it be in a, a correct analogy that part of your job right now is to act like a spotter does in a NASCAR race? Spotter has a different perspective than what the driver sees. And they're constantly calling out, hey, be careful of the guy. He's below you. He's below you. All right, you got one behind you. Because our people can become so focused on what they're doing, we need someone with that broader perspective. I think that's very much my job is is to try to keep that 30,000 foot view, right, that we, we talk about sometimes. And, and the officers and those doing the work, the most important people in the organization, you know, typically hang around that 10, 15,000 foot view. And so my job is to make sure to keep that horizon view, that 30,000 foot view of what's going on, to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to be top-notch organization that's serving their community in, in a phenomenal way, but at the same time also giving our people the tools they need to make sure that's happening and also to try to prevent as much as we can, you know, not being clairvoyant and seeing the future, but as much as we can with trends and things we see in other areas, what do we need to be doing to make sure that we're also trying to avoid any of the pitfalls or roadblocks that are out there. So 100% agree with you. I think that's one of the most important parts of my job is to try to keep that 30,000 foot view. You mentioned you're excited about catching the Blue Jean Bandits at such an early stage in your career. Has there been a point now that you've advanced in your career where you're, it's a proud moment as chief, hey, me and my people, this is what we did we brought home the bad guys. Is there a moment that you're proud of that you can speak of? Yes, I'll say moments. And, and this started with uh, my time as a detective. And, and just recently, we we, uh, we had one of these operations. 
To me, one of the greatest things we do in law enforcement is protect those that cannot protect themselves. And uh, that's especially children uh, and, and teenagers. And and, uh, and then, of course, you go the other end with elderly. And so I worked crimes against children. I got involved with an FBI task force where we dealt with these people that would travel sometimes thousands of miles to uh, to sexually abuse children. And so I got got some some arrest with that, some great experience with that, working with the feds nationally. And so that really gave me a passion, even though those are difficult cases to work. Uh, it gave me a passion for it. And now uh, I've got an investigative unit that is phenomenal. And, uh, you know, we just did a couple of months ago a sex trafficking operation. We had a rescue where we rescued a young lady and got her in a safe place. And even if we do three or four more operations and don't have any of those results, one one person makes it worth it all. So, yes, we, we definitely have a desire here to we want to make all the arrests. We want to arrest those that are property crimes and, and hurting people, things like that. We get into the drug thing. Of course, we do a lot of work with that and there's a need for that. But I'm especially passionate about and our team is as well about this human trafficking issue, which is just rampant, not just in our country, throughout the world. And so I'm working with a team right now, some uh, ex-military, ex-SF military that are very much involved in trying to work with local agencies to kind of partner up with these operations. And we're meeting sometime in June to plan our next one for the fall. So I, I would say, I mean, I'm proud of our team. They do a phenomenal job every day and they go out there. But these operations are especially, I think, vital and important and um, sends a message that, you know, we really value trying to protect and take care of, of, of these victims. Uh, I'm going to say from personal experience, one of the things that I admire most about the chief is how he celebrates the successes of his people, how authentic and sincere he is when, when he says how proud he is and how, how good they do. And Chief, I apologize for kind of putting you on the spot here, but there, there was a story of a girl who had been kidnapped, a little girl who'd been kidnapped and was recovered in your city. And I remember when you were telling me the story, and I, what I remember is it involved Man Mountain. I don't know what his name is, but Man Mountain, I'm not sure how he fit in a patrol vehicle. Would you mind relating that story for us? Because I think that's a great way of showing that it's not just about catching the bad guy. Well, and yes, that's one of my favorite stories. And, and one of the reasons I tell that story, uh, whether it be teaching or, or just in, in sharing in general, is our goal and desire here, our mission. Our mission is to enhance the quality of life of those that live, work, and play in Alpharetta. So hopefully, if you ever see a police officer, a firefighter, or a 911 uh, dispatcher from Alpharetta, they can at least give you those three words, quality of life. Uh, I, I wear that out, honestly. I think we do, but that's what we're supposed to do. And so we always want to recognize and reward when we go above and beyond in, in demonstrating, you know, enhancing people's quality of life. And so the the, the original call that came out was uh, there was a, a four-year-old little girl that had been kidnapped out of Oklahoma by her estranged father, and they ended up in Alpharetta. Shift that night did a phenomenal job, got the girl pretty quickly, got him in custody. And so now we have this four-year-old little girl, mom's all the way in Oklahoma, uh, family services is now on the scene. And so what we've got to do, what they've got to do is figure out how to get, um, you know, get the child in, into mom's care, obviously. So mom's got to drive all the way out to here, Georgia from Oklahoma. I think it was, I want to say a 14, 16 hour drive, something like that. I can't remember the exact distance, but it was a long way. And so here she has gone through this traumatic event of having her daughter kidnapped. She's, of course, relieved now that she's got to drive all the way out here. So a couple of our officers, including one that you were talking about, Mike, he's one of our undercover guys now, and he is a mountain of a man. And I mean that like a stout, he's, I don't know, six five, six six, just enormous, right? Got the deep voice and everything. 
he and another one of the officers that were involved in this asked their supervisors, hey, is there any way we could meet mom halfway? Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. This is, again, why it's so easy for me to be proud. They've already done a great job. They've arrested the bad guy. They've rescued a four-year-old. And, and job well done, that's worth celebrating right there. But they're thinking, we want to do more. We want to help this mom on their own. And so they go to the supervisors and say, hey, can we maybe drive her and meet her at least halfway, you know, to shorten her trip? So the supervisors, rightfully so, said that's, that's going to be a chief call. So they called me and woke me up, and that's a great reason to be awakened. And, and, so, and here's the situation. And I said, well, is Family Services on board with this? Are they okay with it? And they said yes. And I said, absolutely. And so they met mom. I believe it was in the Memphis area. Uh, one of the funny stories when I uh, gave – uh, we, we give a chief's coin for the quality of life, again, the above and beyond, a special recognition. So when I presented the chief coin at roll call one night, I said, what did you do for six hours, or how many hours you were in with this little girl in the back of the vehicle? And Big big Josh said, we sang wheels on the bus go round and round a whole lot. <laughs> so you have to see it to appreciate it. But uh, again, what I love about that story is that was their own initiative. And and again, we could have just celebrated the rescue of the child and the arresting the, the father and been done. But they went above and beyond. And that's what we've created as a mission. That's what we want. That's the expectation of our employees here. And, and they certainly demonstrated that. I wish our listeners could, could see how your face lights up when you start talking about your people. I mean, I mean, it's almost like you've got the family photo album out and you're showing people, <laughs> you know, the grandkids. But what was it that drove you from you were an informal leader, a leader, a leader without rank? What was it that, that drove you to say, you know what, I, I want to put something behind this. I want to have some rank so that I have more influence on what happens in my agency. I wish I had a great story of an, of an epiphany or a moment where I was like, you know, I want to I want to be in a recognized leadership position so I can make my agency better, you know, and and I had this great motive. Uh, but that's not really what happened. Again, I was thrilled to be a detective. I went through the process of at that time we didn't have sergeants. So a lieutenant was a frontline supervisor. So I took the exam for lieutenant, went through the process, got on the on the list. But honestly, was very happy where I was. And my chief at the time brought me in one day and said, hey, I've got an opening and I, I need you to go. We need, we need you on patrol. I need you to go be a lieutenant, a frontline supervisor. And honestly, I, I really struggled with that and, and really questioned whether that's what I wanted to do or not. Uh, it really wasn't going to be much of a financial difference. So there wasn't much of a raise and that kind of thing, more responsibility. Uh, but after getting some advice from some folks and talking, you know, as you guys know, you, you never turn down a promotion. And, and so I didn't. And so I got in the role, walking into this job with no clue. You know, thankfully, I had a strong captain who was very helpful in trying to get me going in the right direction. But I, I didn't know what this entailed. But it didn't take long after that to go, wow, I have an opportunity here to really have an impact on other people, on other officers and, and make a difference and, and to try to, to make it better. You know, that's one of our phrases we love here. It's on one of our walls downstairs outside of uh, our, our roll call room, make it better. We say it all the time. It's one of our fundamentals. And I have a chance now, maybe more because of, I'm in a recognized leadership role to do that. And then from there, you know, more promotional opportunities came up. And as I began to fall in love with leadership and again, the 
the opportunity to, to really help and help not only serve the community, but now also serve internally these wonderful people that are that are a part of this job. It it, it became just a, a passionate. But I was, again, fortunate that I had a chief that pushed me into it, honestly. And I, I owe a lot to him for, for giving me that opportunity because it was not on my radar at the time. Lots of folks uh, balance work and pursuing higher education degrees. But in law enforcement, it's a little bit higher pressure, a little bit more stress. How did you balance going back to school, getting these advanced degrees while still maintaining this high stress job? I have to start with number one on that list is my wife. We know the challenges this profession creates for family. And we, you know, at, at, with the master's in public administration, that's, that one kind of came up. And of course, as you mentioned before, I already, I already had an MDiv, which was kind of unusual. But anyway, this opportunity came up and it's while I was working in Powder Springs at that time. And kids were older, but there were still a couple home at that point. Uh, but she was supportive of that. And then when the doctorate came along, after that, that opportunity, uh, which I really had no intention, that was not even on my radar at all. And again, I have to give my wife credit to like, you know, maybe something you, you should think about. And, and we did. We talked about it, prayed about it. And they thing, you know, I'm, I'm enrolled in, in doing it. But the kids were grown at that point. The kids were pretty much out of the house. And so she was supportive of me spending a lot of time on weekends, you know, spending hours on, on the laptop typing and researching. And and so for me, I can tell you, it was the support of my wife. At that point, you know, with the doctorate, as I think I was chief at that point when I started, yes, I was chief. You know, I, the schedule, a little, little more reasonable, Monday through Friday uh, for the most part, and had some flexibility and, again, time on weekends. So, uh, But I could not have done it without her support. What ended up being two agencies is I finished my doctorate when I was here in Alpharetta that were also supportive and believed in education and uh, allowed me the opportunity to do that. For for our listeners and for Brent, they know that I, I'm a big believer in the power of words. And I just want to point out one of the things that the chief said right there. He goes, he fell in love with leadership. I, I appreciate that so much because he didn't say I fell in love with authority or I didn't fall in love with power because leadership is about people and the other things are about you. Give me some ideas, if you would. What is it that you try to do as a leader to show that love for your people. We already talked about how you change a policy, not because you don't like your people, but because you love them and you want them to be safe. What, what are some things that you and your agency do to show the love for those that work there? Hopefully a lot. Again, I, I will be the first to admit that a lot of these things I say, I, I can't tell you I'm always good at it, but uh, you know, we have on our, our wall upstairs, we have two stories. And so right outside my office here, uh, is our command staff. And so we have police and fire and 911, all our command staff up here. And we have in very large letters on the wall, uh, add value to our people. And so in a general way of speaking, Mike, that, that's, that's the goal. Uh, when I, when I bring somebody in for, as a new hire and do the conditional offer, I tell them, say, listen, here's our mission statement. Well, my mission statement, I'm a big believer, and I'm, Mike, I know you are too, of, you know, purpose-driven leaders, right? That I have a purpose every day I come to work. So I, I took our mission statement and, and created my own mission statement. My job exists to enhance the quality of life of those that come to work for the Alfred Department of Public Safety. And so that's the goal. And, and I want to add value to our people. I want them and even their families, even though this crazy job and the schedules and all that, I want them to feel like they are adding value to their family life as well. I just had a guy recently um, resign to go take a, a federal job, which one of our great officers, hate to lose him, but that's, that's good for him. But one of the things I saw in his exit interview that 
made me think we're hitting the mark is, is that he would recommend our agency because they always prioritize families first. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of places say that. Uh, this guy, they've gone through some health issues with the family, things like that. And so he would lived it and seen that. And so that's a way we can add value to our people. You know, there's several other ways. You know, we we want to career track people when they get here, once they get their feet wet and get going, especially lateral transfers. Okay, we immediately start trying to figure out, you know, they want to be a detective. They want to be canine. They want to be motors. And if they do, even early on, if they earn the opportunity, you know, through hard work and, and show the commitment, then, you know, we'll start, you know, exposing them. Like I've got a couple of folks that are canine unit right now that go train with them. And, and if you want to be a detective, we will TDY you for a couple of weeks and you can go up to uh, CID and, and hang out there a little bit. And then they'll actually assign you some some very low level cases while you're on patrol. And when you have a little extra time, you can work those cases out. So really trying to show them from day one, we're not just bringing you in to be a police officer, which again, is the most important job in the organization and, you know, figure it out from there. We want to invest in you. We want to help you. We want to, you know, round peg, round hole. Just today having a conversation about one of our officers who just got his um, uh, master's degree in counseling. And this guy's got a passion for helping people with mental health. And we have uh, what's called a community watch program now that we started last year that's actually more on the fire side regarding medical, but we've seen such a need for mental health that we're going to put him in a position, a full-time position, because that's his passion. He's good at it. It's a unique situation. So trying to do things like that along the way and show people that, you know, we're investing in them. Now, again, they have to earn it. They have to, you know, they have to come in and work hard. Ultimately, they need to feel like everything we do is about them, you know, and that that's that's why we're here. And I know and I and I made my research showed this when I when I got my doctorate that if we invest in them and we add value to them and, and they come to work every day with a high level of job satisfaction, they're going to go out and do a phenomenal job and they're going to serve our community at a high level. And our folks do that. They really do. I also don't take it for granted that I am very blessed because our team is just unbelievable. They really are. So they make my job easier in a lot of ways. And we're also in a community that loves law enforcement, loves fire, loves 911, is very supportive. So I, I don't take that for granted. But with all that said, my number one priority should always be to invest in our team and to help grow them, develop. It's transformational leadership. At the end of the day, that's been around a long time, but that's exactly what it is. It's that transformational leadership approach that creates buy-in. They feel like they have a voice. They feel like they matter. I like the phrase, they're playing for something bigger than themselves, you know, and us helping create that purpose and that passion, hopefully, for them. You and I have talked, and we've actually talked about it on the, this program before. It is virtually impossible for our people to add value to those that they come in contact with in the community if they haven't had value added to them internally. If the tank's dry, the tank's dry. I think we saw we saw the remnants of that. You know, there's a lot of things we learned from 2020 with COVID, and of course, with with uh, the George Floyd riots, things like that. And and I think you saw a lot of police officers. Uh, I mean, we we all recognize how bad that was and how wrong that was. There's no question about that. But we also saw a lot of police officers, especially in some major cities, that felt like they were basically discarded and hung out to dry. And you're right. You have an environment like that where people come to work every day, especially in a job where they literally do put their life on the line and they are dealing with stresses of, of you know, the financial part and the, the schedules and all that and then the family life and all those dynamics. I mean, if ever there's a job where they need to feel like their leaders have their back and, and support them, it's this profession. And, and we saw where that was unfortunately not the case in a lot of places. And we are still in 2023 seeing the after effect of that. 
being at staffing and, and a lot of other issues that we're seeing where that was problematic. You used the word epiphany a bit ago, and I want to take you back to another time that you and I were together, and we actually were driving from Martin, Tennessee, Virtual Academy, going to Nashville to catch our flights. And we were having this discussion. I, I loved how you said, I said, Mike, I finally realized that the reason why I didn't allow beards in my agency was because I don't like beards as we sit on a podcast with two guys with, with beards. I didn't me. say I didn't like beards in general. I said beards in uniform. Let me be clear on that. Well, no, I, that's not how uniforms. I remember it as I'm sitting <laughs> here looking at Brett. But but th- there's a backstory to that too, though, because it, that actually started with somebody who, who works with you. Isn't that correct? Yeah. So, you know, we, 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 made the changes here, like a lot of places, looking at tattoos, we, we had to. We understood that was a, a new time where it used to be a lot of places, including ours, you couldn't have any any visible tattoos, things like that. But the beard thing came up, and we did the No Shave November like everybody did at one point. You know, it was it was good, good PR. Uh, guys grew a beard. And again, this is, for us, it's not just police, it's fire, and you have to be mindful of the seal for the mask and all those things. So we would do the No Shave November and raise money and it was good and and they would come and say hey chief can we you know can we do this full time with beards full time and i was like no i don't want to do that well eventually in my mind i met them halfway and said we can do it once a quarter so let's do october november december again we make it a fundraiser you don't have to but if you'll chip in 20 bucks you know a quarter again we'll donate that money to a local charity it's a good look whatever but i was done i drew the line right there because my personal preference was i just i've never liked the look of beards and in, in, with uniforms and and again no valid reason beyond that but anyway so they they you know after a year of that they can, can we please do it can we please do it and and i was like no I, re- I really don't you know i don't think that's right and so one day my deputy chief at the time we were having a conversation. We had a good relationship. And uh, he said, Chief, he said, you always, you know, talk about having an open mind, being innovative and, you know, trying to look at creating opportunities for people to, to do things they enjoy and, and, and feel valued here. And, and so you keep, you know, knocking the beard thing. And so what is your real reason for it? And I wanted to come in with this great, you know, philosophical answer or, you know, this is how it's going to hurt their job. And I had to stop and go, you know what? It's personal preference. And, and my deputy chief, and I, I appreciate him for it, uh, he called me out on it, you know, and, and I wasn't practicing what I what, what I was preaching regarding, you know, us focusing on something that really isn't a big deal at the end of the day. I, I had to step back and go, you're right. And I remember that uh, that was shortly before our next annual, every January we have an employee appreciation dinner. It's a huge event. We do the awards, all that. And that night I announced it and said, hey, you know what? Um, beards, it is. You know, my, my rule was I don't want ZZ Top and I don't want, you know, uh, I don't want the, the, the look of a 13-year-old boy trying to grow a beard. That was all I asked. And you would have thought I gave everybody a puppy, right? You know, it was like a major win. And, and we that could have happened much earlier, except that I was being stubborn and did not have a good reason for it, honestly. And so that was a lesson learned for me. And uh, also, I think I shared with you, Mike, one of the things that, that I – appreciated about that though was one of the things i want here and we want here for leadership is we want people to feel like they can speak up and if they disagree you know respectfully but hey if if you see this is not right or even if i'm not right you know call me out on it bring it up we want to do what's best we want again make it better and and in that case, I was hindering that, and uh, and my deputy chief called me out on it, and, and uh, I appreciated that. I think that's the, uh, referring back to what Mike says, that's the evolution of your leadership, because it was 
okay, what's best for my team instead of, no, this is just the way it's going to be. Right. That kind exactly. Of. That's exactly right. Yes. Oh, when I was an FTO, one of the things I tried to instill in young officers was uh, the difference between a good officer and a great officer is understanding the difference between what you can do and what you should do. And I think that's also a great separator between a good leader and a great leader. Just because you can doesn't always mean that you should. No, I, I, I totally agree, Mike. And I think if anything, we've got to move even further away from that and have even more of an open mind. We all know the challenges with hiring and retention, things like that, new generations. And so we've really got to get away from that fixed mindset of certain things being a certain way. And, and uh, I just saw an article the other day, I think it was in Colorado, of one of the police departments trying a four-day work week. Yes. You know, and I'm like, okay, that sounds crazy. And the old school, you know, me, and I'm, I'm one of those guys, I'm old enough to be old school, that doesn't feel good to me naturally, but that doesn't matter. We have to be willing to try things like that, as crazy as it may seem to some of us. And uh, I'm not saying it's going to work, but I like the thought of somebody's trying something different. We have to be more willing now more than ever to kind of have that open mindset on, on things like that. When I saw that, and Brenna, I don't know if you saw it, but the, the department is going to give 40 hours pay for 32 hours work. Since we've already mentioned one movie before, in the words of Major Pain, kind of makes me feel <laughs> funny inside. <laughs> you know? It's a great impression, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great movie. I get 40-hour pay for 50 hours. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, at some point, though, you made the decision you know what? I've got a lot of experience and I've got a lot of a lot of knowledge, a lot of education when it comes to leadership. And I think that I can actually help some younger people accelerate that leadership maturity process. So you decided to write a book. How did that come about? I think it's a combination. It was one of those. I'd like to try it. I tend to be when I speak and teach a storyteller. Uh, and so I thought, how would that, you know, storytellers when I read, which I read a lot, uh, not as much as you, Mike, but I do read a lot. Uh, I like storytellers. I like stories, analogies, you know, give me good illustrations to drive home points. And so that style of teaching, I thought that might work well in a book. Uh, also, I've been, you know, uh, blessed to be around some great leaders and learn from a lot of people, even here in the area. Uh, and then also, you know, one of the cool things about teaching, Mike, as you know, going all over the country and doing that is kind of a part time gig for me. And you, you, you pick up so much from so many other people, uh, even line-level officers sometimes, and you just, you're blown away by ideas and initiatives and things like that. So all that was on my mind, and I kind of started playing out just a, an outline in my mind and did some blogs and things like that. Next thing I know, I kind of had an outline and just sat down and just started going after it on, the, on, on my laptop. And, and one of the things specifically you know, about this, I was trying to include some, some sections in each chapter, some very practical points, you know, some like, these are things I've tried. Um, I'm very honest that most of the good ideas that we've tried here are not my ideas. I've stolen them from somewhere else or somebody else came up with it, but these are things that we've tried that worked here or I've heard other people doing. And so it's kind of a combination of experience for me, but I, you know, trust me, there were days when I was writing the book going, do I really have the right to even be trying to talk about leadership with other people? I mean, seriously, I mean, wh who do I think I am? You know, kind of thing. But it's so much more than just my experience and wisdom. It's it's what I've gained from so many others, be it through reading, through listening, through, you know, uh, trying to put myself around good leaders and having good mentors. And next thing I know, several months later, had it together and uh, yeah, pretty excited about it. Now, let's be honest with each other here. 
Okay. What I would have thought was the most difficult process, which would be writing the book, actually was probably the easier part of the process because the the proofing and editing part of it, that's a long process, isn't it? It, it is. And, you know, I, I know, like I, I could tell you for the most part what's grammatically correct and things like that. And I mean, I, I had to, I did a dissertation. I had to go through that process with, with my doctorate. And, and by the way, that was one of the things that drove me with this too. Part of the book is some of my research from about transformational leadership. So yes, I know all that, but it is amazing <laughs> when I wrote my draft and, and, you know, when I got it back, you know, I have a publisher here in Alpharetta that's actually been really good to me and they, they've done some really good books nationally. And so they're very reputable and I got them recommended. So they've been wonderful. So I sent the original draft, got it back and was like, wow. And do I have a third grade education all of a sudden? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You know, so so between that and then even as there are people at this publisher that get paid to do this. And then we have my wife who is even more of a, pardon the, the, the phrase, but more of a grammar Nazi. And uh, and so she got a hold of it and was like, yeah, this may be grammatically correct, but this is not written in its best form. And so, yes, the throwing the idea, ideas down and, and doing that was not much of, I mean, it was a challenge, of course, but it was, it flowed pretty well. But the, the after process has been, <laughs> it's been an experience for sure. Well, I would just like to point out that you're not the only person that had questions about your education after reading your book, uh, because I'm pretty sure your wife has had those same questions based upon the. Oh, absolutely. The, <laughs> yes. I love how General Mattis put it. You know, one of my heroes, he, he said that uh, a book is where authors from across the centuries have sat down and shared their experiences with us so that we don't have to make the same mistakes that they did. I think that people like you that are willing to do that are doing a great service to those coming behind them if they choose to take advantage of it. I could not agree more with what, what Mattis says and his approach to reading because, again, think about it. You, We have the opportunity. One, one of the stories I share in the book is about Eisenhower and Eisenhower the night before D-Day and, of course, and, and his crucial role in that. But the book I read was it was the biography from his granddaughter, I believe. And so reading that and reading about his leadership and about his leadership styles and how here is uh, the allied commander who's responsible for hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And the night before, he's literally just going up and down and stopping and just talking to soldiers and saying, you know, how are you doing? Tell me about where are you from? You know, oh, I went fly fishing there. Oh, I, I did this there. And just talking about their hometowns. And he would throw in a little bit of work like, do you feel ready? You feel prepared? Yes, sir. But the whole point of that was the importance of engagement, our people seeing us, especially during a critical time. And so I learned about General Eisenhower's mindset and his approach the night before D-Day. We all know about D-Day and the, the tactical leader he was and all those things. And of course, that was probably one of the most important days in the history of our world, honestly, to be able to tap in a little more just to who he was, his personality and kind of his mindset of, of dealing with these young men, many of which he knew were not going to survive that next day. And so, yes, Mattis is right. We can just pick up a book and, and read that and get into the mind of some phenomenal people and phenomenal leaders and take that and hopefully apply that where it fits in our own lives as leaders. I've noticed in researching for this episode, your uh, agency is out on social media, YouTube, that sort of thing. How important is transparency within your community? It's it's huge. And, you know, I think most chiefs and most leaders will tell you we have to be transparent, but it's when the when the bad stuff happens is when that gets tested. When I was here in Alpharetta, within my first year, we had a, 
very controversial traffic stop that we honestly didn't handle exceptionally well and uh, and it went viral quickly and there were a lot of accusations made uh, about us and and of course what I found out a couple of things I found out there number one being transparent is important and I I knew that there was going to be a story release on the news at five that afternoon and so I got on our social media and made a statement presented it within you know that, that afternoon probably two three o'clock something like that and got it got out ahead of it but also learned something interesting from that uh, that being transparent and also our team always doing such a great job of building trust with our community that most of the critics were people that didn't live in Alfreda. They were all over the world, all over the country, you know, the the 32-year-old man sitting in his mother's basement kind of thing, keyboard warriors, being transparent and truly making that a part of what we do and and our team always doing such a great job of earning trust did help us survive that and get through it. So, yes, transparency is key. We want to throw all the good stuff out, all the feel-good stories, but if we mess up, we got to fess up. You know, the old Chaco thing, we got to own it, and we, we want to own the good stuff, but we have to own the bad stuff, too, and if we make mistakes, knowing that we're going to take our lumps for it, but uh, the best way to maintain our integrity and, and hopefully the trust of our community is to own up to those mistakes when we make them. I just saw you You had a, a YouTube video out where you were, you know, talking, you were addressing, and it's, you know, it was, I thought it was important that you put a face on your role so the people could, you know, know who you are and be a part of that community. Absolutely. I think that's important. Usually every year I try to put out a video just a hey, happy new year. Here's what's going on. You know, there have been a few videos that I've done for the community and a couple of which were in response to some some questionable calls or some things that came out. But I don't try to do that too much. I, I want that to be our team that's out there being seen and being viewed. But there are certain times where I think the community needs to see me and, and uh, just just know who I am and, and hopefully what I stand for and what we stand for. And then when those critical incidents do happen, um, that you know they, they see me as, as, as the guy out front as well. That's one of the things I appreciated about the book, because I was fortunate to be able to read that with you as you were developing it. It's not a collection of war stories in the classic sense. Uh, be, because there's a lot of fessing <laughs> up that go, goes on in the book. It's called Compelling Force Leadership. And I got that. And if you when you open the book a couple pages in, you'll see it's, it's crazy where I came across this. But uh, one of the classes that we teach that Mike knows very well and actually helped write that I still teach a good bit is Leading Without Rank. And we talk about the difference between. Um, you know, being a leader, basically being a boss with authority, you know, so it's, it's, it's influence versus authority and true leaders utilize their influence. People that utilize their authority aren't leaders. They're just uh, they're ma- making people do things in, in a very simple nutshell. Anyway, so I, I had looked up a couple of definitions of influence and it was dictionary dot com of, of all places. Their definition of influence had the phrase, uh, and I don't remember the exact words, it's in the book, but basically you're a compelling force to help move people towards, you know, uh, actions. And I loved it. I was like compelling force. You know, what a great correlation between being influential and using your influence to be a compelling force and you can fill in the blank for so many things to to make sure we're a great agency to a compelling force for our people and and again adding value to them and so i just loved that that definition and uh so that kind of got the wheels turning as far as you know kind of the core if you would of, of of what i call the three p's in the book and that's uh you know leading people with purpose and passion and that compelling force utilizing that influence to to make those three p's happen you finally have a release I do. date. Uh, the July book, the eleventh. It will be uh, available on Amazon and uh, also Barnes and Noble uh, for sure. Those will be the two main ones, um, and uh, it will be uh, the, the launch date as of right now is is July eleventh. 
And so we'll make sure that we put the, the links to that in our show notes because, folks, I've read, the, I've read it. It's fantastic stuff. The thing I, I really like about it is it's practical. Hey, you know, if I'm reading it tonight before I've got a shift tomorrow, it's something I can put into place tomorrow that's going to make me a better leader. Well, I appreciate that. That really was the goal, uh, was to hopefully be somewhat of an enjoyable read, and but practicality was a big part of that. I wanted people to be able to pick it up, whether they were especially a brand new supervisor or new to leadership or somebody that's maybe been doing it a long time that maybe just needed a couple of fresh ideas. That was one of the big goals was uh, to give some practical applications that people could carry away and do exactly the the idea that was shared or at least take a portion of that idea and apply it to their world and, and utilize it, hopefully. Uh, as we're wrapping things up here, I want to put you on the spot one more time. OK, I've read somewhere that we should never trust somebody who has written more than they have read. <laughs> so I, I, I know that you are constantly trying to improve your knowledge, skills and ability when it comes to leadership. What, what is it you're doing now to make yourself better tomorrow? So uh, I love Cynic's quote, and I never can remember which podcast. I think I refer to this in the book, Simon Cynic, of course, which is one of my one of our favorite authors. Uh, but somebody asked him one time, they said, what what are a couple of common characteristics with all the leaders you interview and, and all the, the really good leaders you've talked to, what are a couple of commonalities or common you know, uh, characteristics? And he said they're humble and they're teachable. And so it's that whole idea, you know, of, of always growing. Right. And, uh, you know, you look at Maxwell's uh, five levels of leadership and that pinnacle, even when you get to that pinnacle. And I'm not saying by any means I'm there, but you still always have to be willing to grow. And so. For me, it's it's a couple. It is reading. I'm speaking of Maxwell, I, I, he's my next book as far as his new book on communication. Looking forward to that. I'm actually going through Maxwell certification process as well, uh, just uh, to hopefully gain some things out of that. So reading, constantly reading. I'm a huge, and I refer to him a couple of times in the book. People like Lencioni, Patrick Lencioni, I think is a great leadership author. He is so much a transformational leader, and so rings true to the things I'm trying to do in, in my role. And so listening to his podcast, listening to a lot of different podcasts. Also, honestly, I still, you know, once a month, there's a group of chiefs here in the area that we share a lot of the same common traits regarding, um, you know, leadership approach and faith and things like that. And so we meet, you know, once a month regularly. I still try to really surround myself as much as I can with some really good leaders. I've got a couple of folks, you know, out of that group that they're my mentors and I will call and say, hey, this wasn't, this wasn't in the Chief in 101 book. Can you help me here? And so constantly staying connected with with effective leaders, you know, surrounding ourselves is, I think, important in that. Uh, and, and, and just conferences always, you know, just just last week we f did something unique. I mentioned we were trying uh, to, we're starting a real time crime center. Well, one of the best real time crime centers in the country right now is in Beverly Hills. Now, granted, they're a little unique. They're five square miles, and they have 144 officers, quite a budget, um, which is a little envious when I went up. But so myself and two two team members from my um, technology team that's going to be overseeing this, we flew out there and just spent the day with the chief and, and went and, and toured the center, and they're doing some crazy innovative stuff. And so doing things like that, like going to where you're seeing things work well and learning from that, you know, and that, that, that hopefully helps me keep sharp and, and make sure we're staying innovative. And so I'm a big believer if somebody's doing something well, go check it out, right? Read about it, go see it, whatever that may be. So just constantly trying to, to do that. And I learned so much from our team here. I've got an unbelievable command staff and an unbelievable group of officers and firefighters and dispatchers who I try to engage with as much as possible. And they've got great ideas and, and they come to the table with stuff sometimes and it blows me away. I, I know we're about out of time, but we're going back to New Jersey for our second time this year. 
Uh, we went last summer. I got a captain that's from there. And he's like, man, you got people up there that they try for seven, eight, ten years to get on on the job, as they say up there, and and they can't because of uh, you know there's a lot of roadblocks and and you have to uh, you have to basically know people, all these small agencies. He said, I think if we went up there and actually took our our PT test up there, take it on the road and do the whole testing and everything in one week. I think we can do well with that. And we went up there. I said, we'll try anything. And uh, this was his idea. Went up there and we, we've, we've hired 10 officers from New Jersey, including a sergeant from NYPD. So we're going to go do it again. And we're going to do it for dispatch as well this time. My point in all that being, you know, I'm learning from our people here on our team. I've got unbelievably sharp people. And so uh, I, I learned from them and that keeps me sharp, hopefully, and keeps me growing. And uh, I just know, and Mike, I know you know this, the, the day we stop learning and growing uh, is the day we, we start our, our quick road to uh, being basically useless. Matt, I suggest a podcast for you. Uh, the Left of Greg podcast I hear is phenomenal. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's about brought to you by Left of Greg. Uh, you also talked about teaching for command presence. Mm-hmm. If somebody wanted to come and listen to you, uh, where would they go to get information about the, those classes? So just Google command presence or commandpresence.net, and there's a whole schedule there. Yeah, I've got some classes coming up, I think, in July. Again, I try to teach once or twice a month ish. You know, it kind of averages out to that because. This is obviously my full-time job, so I'll you know take a day off here and there and go teach, and I love that. Uh, Mike, again, you can appreciate this. You know, just going all over the country and hearing, number one, it makes me feel better because a lot of people are facing the same problems I'm, we face <laughs> here in our area, right? But number two, well. uh, it makes me appreciate so much what we have here and also appreciate a lot of officers out there working in some, some tough circumstances, but also getting great ideas and you know, law enforcement, especially on that side, takes a beating publicly and nationally a lot of times. And there's still just a ton of people out there that are just unbelievable in what they do and what they bring to this profession and their desire to serve. And and what is now more than ever, I think, difficult because of the public outcry and the things we deal with and and so many other, you know, issues we're competing with and and creating the struggles for for hiring and and retaining. It's 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 a struggle right now. It really is. And yet so many men and women are out there just going to work and doing the job and. And I, I just can't appreciate that enough. So I'm, I'm very blessed to be able to do that. And that's where I met Mike. And Mike was very helpful to me and kind of a mentor in getting the teaching game going. Uh, and I love it. I love teaching. I love teaching and speaking. Um, I'm one of those weird people that I would rather be in a group of 5,000 people speaking than put me in a room with three people I don't know. I'm definitely uh, an introvert, but <laughs> energized by, you know, going and talking. And, and, uh, and so um, I'm, I'm grateful for that and, and very much enjoy doing it. I appreciate you coming and being this little intimate group of, I don't know, three, four or five. I think there are five of us uh, here here right now. I also want to thank you uh, not only for being here, but for the job that you continue to do. And thank you for the impact that you've had on me personally and me professionally. I just, I just cannot express enough how much I appreciate that. Well, thank you, man. And, and, and same to you. I appreciate you very much. Looking forward to seeing you here in a couple months and uh, excited about that as well. And, and, and we'll look forward to catching up for sure. Absolutely. Brent, uh, listen, uh, I'm, I'm going to get to see the chief here uh, August uh, Virtual Academy. We're doing a live in-person training in Kennesaw. Always looking forward uh, to those in-person things so we can interact with the people. Uh, like the chief said, I enjoy leaders 
like the chief. Yeah, it was an insightful episode. I enjoy hearing him speak, and you guys are going to want to check out his book, and we'll put a link to where you guys can uh, purchase that in the show notes and the episode page between the lines with virtualacademy.com. We've got all of our past episodes. We want you guys to subscribe so you can get new episodes as they come out each and every Tuesday morning. And uh, it's all right there between the lines with virtualacademy.com. Chief, thank you so much for giving up an hour of your time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Again, I'm, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity. I enjoyed it very much. 